Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. The topic of this roundtable discussion was family dynamics. Participating in this event were autistic self-advocates Mary Johnston and Corbin Havener, as well as autism sibling and occupational therapist Cheryl Albright. In today's conversation, we discuss parent-child relationships, what it's like to have neurodiverse or neurotypical parents, why divorce rates are high among parents of autistic children, sibling relationships, how to support adolescents transitioning into adulthood, choosing a life partner, starting your own family, taking care of aging parents, and the importance of creating plans for elder adulthood. In this episode, discover what's possible when family comes first. To learn more about the participants, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online Global Autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, You can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. Hey guys, good to see everyone again. Hello. Hi. Before we get started, let's go around and do some quick introductions. Mary, you want to go first? I'm Mary. I am the blogger on the Instagram page, Autistic Rainbow. And I recently just started my own little podcast called Greater Than Barriers, if anyone's interested. Okay. My name is Corbin Havener. I guess right now I'm at Front Porch in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I am from the past cohort of moderators. And right now I've been working 12-hour shifts at BF Goodrich um, as a union member. But I think likely next year I'll be a full-time elementary school teacher at uh, Fort Wayne Community Schools, but I'm not there yet. Hi, I'm Cheryl Albright. I am an autism SIB, occupational therapist, among other things, and a skill color alum as well. So this month's theme is family dynamics, which is, I think, something everyone can relate to. So in the community, we've laid out this theme by looking at the different phases in someone's life, right? So when they're born, there's that parent-child relationship. 
And as they get older, they start relating to their siblings. And eventually they'll transition into adulthood, maybe going into a phase in life when they're looking for a life partner or maybe starting their own family. And then if they're lucky, they make it into their elder adult life. So in this conversation, we're going to go through these different phases and look at how family dynamics play a part there. Okay. All right. Let's go back to the beginning. Now we are looking at the parent-child relationship. So Mary and Corbin, from your perspectives, what do you have to share about your relationships with your parents? Are your parents also neurodiverse? Are they neurotypical? Did you find um, maybe it was hard to relate to them or them to relate to you if they're not neurodiverse? So yeah, what are some of your experiences growing up in your early childhood? Okay. Well, I am not certain of any neurodiversities uh, between my parents. You know, a couple things that were pretty consistent growing up is, you know, my my dad, most of the younger portion of my childhood was more of a second shift worker. So like I saw like a I definitely saw him like most of him, uh, most of him on the weekends, uh, more or less. So I saw more of my mom. Now, as far as my mom goes, I mean, aside from a period of burnout, I would say through most of elementary school, my mom's um, actual professional career is a, a special education teacher at the high school level. So she did have a uh, built-in understanding. And, you know, I had a and I have an older brother who, like, I'm not sure what the update update version was, but he did have ADDs, so there was that factor as well. You know, the siblings I grew up with, we each had some some of our uh, more unique factors. Like, I had a sister who had, like, early in her life, had some kidney issues that uh, she dealt with as well. So her her issues were more early childhood physical health, but you know, she grew up, uh, you know, became very healthy as well. Hmm. Thanks, Corbin. Mary, how about you? I would say I know for a fact that my mom is neurotypical. My dad was never diagnosed with autism, but it's funny because we kind of suspect he is because he and I are so alike in so many ways. So we definitely relate to each other in terms of like, we don't really sleep well. We have a lot of anxiety. We don't really socialize well with people we don't know or have an easy time in new situations. So I think that sometimes it's harder for me to kind of bond with my mom because we don't really share certain traits. Obviously, I love my mom. It's just harder to for her to kind of understand what it's like to have those traits. And my dad, I can share like special interests with and he gets it because he's obsessed with guitar so he kind of understands what it's like to have like fixations on stuff and he'll like play guitar for hours and he actually self-taught himself as a kid so he understands when I get like super obsessed with like Disney or something and we can uh connect over that all right And Cheryl, how about you? What was it like in your household? Because your brother's older, right? 
Yeah. So I'm four years younger than my brother. He was diagnosed, I think I was in utero, which was actually pretty young for the 70s and early 80s to get a diagnosis. My family was a little bit on the tail end side. So the story that I've heard is that my great aunt on my mother's side had childhood schizophrenia, which is what they now think of as profound um, on the profound end of the spectrum. My brother still doesn't talk as an adult. And so my father was always a little weird. I always thought it was because he, he worked as a dentist and he looked in a mirror all day and everything was backwards. And he was used to one-sided conversations because people had things in their mouths and couldn't talk back, which maybe was the perfect occupation for him because then he didn't have to worry about social skills. Not really sure. Uh, As far as our family dynamics goes, my brother's pretty high needs, a lot of high needs. And so I was kind of left to my own devices for the most part. I don't remember a whole lot of my childhood. As far as that goes, I was told my first words is, where's Jimmy, which is my older brother. You're learning to talk. You kind of just parrot what's going around. And that was it. It was like, where's your brother? What is he doing? And usually getting into something. So my parents put us both in overalls so they could snatch us real quick if we were running in opposite directions. (laughs) Which, you know, if I was two and he was six, that completely makes sense. But yeah, ours ours were a little different. It was just the two of us. And yeah, he's just got a lot of high needs. So I think mm-hmm. our situation was a little bit different then. Mm-hmm. So kind of related to this, there are some statistics that show a higher divorce rate among parents who have autistic children. Now the cause could be number of stressors on the family or not having enough support or just maybe having some kind of misconceptions about autism that also puts stress on the family, like with responsibilities and expectations. And yeah, if you're comfortable sharing, what was the relationship like between your parents? Mary, you have your hand up? Yeah. So somebody who actually has divorced parents. I've definitely seen them go through a lot of stress raising my sister and I who are autistic. I think some of the um, statistics are true to some extent. I think they get a little burned out or overwhelmed, not having a lot of support or They don't like the judgment or the stares or the comments that come from raising an autistic child. I think it's hard for spouses to communicate and balance the things that come from raising an autistic kid and finding time to spend with themselves and then finding time to parent. And I think also raising my neurotypical brother, they we're just constantly in a state of burnout because my sister is also higher needs. So, you know, they had to bounce of what Grace needs and what I need and what my brother needs. And there was never any time for themselves. And I think it just got to the point where they were so burned out that my parents were like, we're done, you know, and they couldn't handle it anymore. So I think I kind of understand it from that degree and think it just comes from a place of like 
they don't really know how to properly like execute the plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is something that I feel like I need to mention. So I remember a, a past guest um, uh, that you had, Night Functioning Autism, made a really great set, uh, just made a really great explainer uh, video. And, you know, oftentimes the recommendation, which, you know, of course she'd recommend like, you know, in the case that ABA is needed or there's no other option, you would want to go focus over comprehensive because historically there's been this recommendation of 40 hours a week. And when there's no other information and all you have is this 40 hours a week comprehensive, the therapy becomes the life and it becomes overwhelming and exhausting and burnout inducing. So definitely as long as, as long as something's not being overdone, that doesn't need to be overdone. That can lead to better outcomes there. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Corbin said. My sister always needed a lot of occupational therapy, speech therapy. And when I was younger, I also did occupational therapy, speech therapy, different stuff to help us. And we were all going to different schools my brother, my sister, and I, we all went to three different schools. So my parents were constantly juggling three different plans for three different kids. And they would come home exhausted every day because they just didn't know how to handle it. So I'm, I'm going to age myself a little bit. I'm a little bit older than the two of you. So back in the day, there wasn't services. And we grew up in a very rural, small farm town. and. So we were the only, one of the only families that had somebody with a disability in it. And, you know, even still in the late 70s and early 80s, they still said it was the mother's fault if the child, it was the mother being cold causing the autism. And my grandfather was one of those men that voiced that opinion. And so that clearly didn't help any of the situation. Granted, he had a daughter with Down syndrome, but that's a whole different topic for a different day. And nothing was nice as far as family dynamic. I never really remember them being together. It was either one or the other. So if we were both home, it was a parent home because the other one would be off doing whatever they they had to do. So my father's dental practice was hooked to the house. So he was home most of the time, but he was working. And if he wasn't working... And watching us, he was off doing something else, whether it was rotary. He was just involved in rotary, the Mason Lodge, blah, blah, blah. Something to get him out of the house. My mother was too. She was on the school board and did, you know, other things. And it was almost like, (laughs) high five, your turn. I'm out. Kind of is kind of how I remember things. But, you know, my father's parents weren't the nicest. My grandmother... On my mom's side, wasn't really around. She lived, she oddly enough, lived not far from me in Florida. And so we didn't really have support networks either. There wasn't really, there wasn't social media. So you couldn't, you couldn't find your tribe. And there just wasn't really anybody around that had, you know, a disability to just commiserate with, I guess. I don't know other way to put it, but there wasn't the support groups and the, and, the services and the things that there 
are today. So I can't even imagine because our, the nearest center that we would be able to go to is at least a 30 minute drive now. And that town still really doesn't have much in it either. So as far as in the way of services, it's just too rural. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just, it was it's a little different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this will probably be a quick look up because I know it was in the 70s. So when was idea passed? I know it was passed in the 70s. So 1990 is when I, I believe it got signed. And oh, so, yeah, yeah that, my brother, my brother yeah, didn't have an IP. He didn't have any mm-hmm. of that. The Rehabilitation Act was signed. Gosh, now you're making me think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if anybody listens to, you know, I, Judy Human, she was still alive, uh, her podcast, and she goes, into great detail in the history lesson. So I highly recommend her book as far as disability rights goes. Uh, she was definitely a powerhouse for sure. So yeah, I don't I don't remember exact dates. I know that I kind of quasi remember when president signed things. So like George Sr. was the one, Bush Sr. was the one that signed ADA idea kind of came after in 1990. And yeah, so my brother didn't have an IEP. And yeah, those things didn't exist. Yeah, because you know, from my perspective, you know, I went to a school district, you know, just south of Fort Wayne, that you know was sort of like more rural, small town in nature, but kind of satellite to Fort Wayne. And in these rural communities, you know, having a, a good special education department that um, respects the fate principle, free and appropriate public education and allows the ability to do it in the least restrictive environment possible uh, based on the student's need is a lot of times the most valuable and available service that can be had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thinking about different generations, different communities, different laws, different norms, all of that have a different effect on family dynamics. Parents between each other, parent to child, child to parent. So let's transition now into talking about sibling relationships. There's this common consensus, I guess, that siblings of autistic people, now maybe this is a big generalization, but they end up becoming one of their best advocates and sometimes even taking on responsibilities of caring for them also. So what were some of your experiences growing up with your siblings? Maybe you can even share some fun memories you have together. Yeah. So as far as I know, you know, I'm, I wasn't necessarily a loud voice or anything. It depends. Sometimes I wanted to be around people. Sometimes I didn't. But I think if I'm looking at recess back at the Aussian days, I believe that maybe it was first grade and third grade was in the next and the large playground over, or maybe it was second to fourth because my sister was two grades ahead of me. She'd often see me in the next playground over with her friends, and somebody made a comment. You know, she would. Uh, I mean, she would definitely stand up for me on that one on those occasions. The solid memories for me tend to move on later in school. So if we're saying in elementary years, I guess I'll say that. Okay. 
Got it. We had a sensory room in our basement before people knew what a sensory room was. My grandfather died when we were young and they had to spend the money so it didn't impact him later on. And we had a ball bath and trampoline and therapy balls and anything. I'm sure some OT told them to go and get and and purchase and that was probably the only time we really bonded over anything. He was definitely a mover and a shaker. So the ball pit or the swing set out back that was fenced in. So he didn't run off. But yeah, it was around like, it would be more around sensory type experiences because that's kind of where he was. And I just thought we had a bunch of cool stuff. Like, didn't everybody have these things in their basement? Like that was just, you know, yeah. the norm. They don't. And until I got to OT school and went, oh, oh, okay, well, I don't need to pay attention to this module. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it makes a lot of sense how you landed in that career, too. Yeah, it was funny because I spent some time in his classroom when I was in high school. And so he was at that 18 to 22 range. And I took one foot in the classroom and went, nope, not teaching, but I'll figure it out. And yeah, so I knew it was going to be OTPC or speech. I just didn't know which one until I got to school. All right. Mary, how about you? What was your relationship like with your sister and your brother too? My relationship with my siblings is kind of complicated. So with my sister growing up, she had very severe behavioral challenges. So she was always having like, really bad like meltdowns and tantrums and stuff and we had to learn how to like give her space and deal with that because she would get like aggressive and my brother didn't really understand autism so he would lash out at my sister when she lashed out at us and it was very chaotic and stressful (laughs) my brother also didn't really understand me And he would pull like mean pranks, like lock me in the closet and turn the light off. And he would just say like mean kind of punching bag jokes. And I wouldn't laugh. I would get upset and think that they weren't funny. So my relationship growing up with my brother was kind of complicated. We get along a lot better now because he kind of knows like what upsets me and what doesn't. And he's able to like say jokes that I actually do find funny and won't like misinterpret. So he's gotten a lot better. And in terms of my sister, I actually really like having an autistic sibling because while I sometimes feel like I'm in her shadow with like her needs and stuff, I have someone that I can personally relate to and hang out with. And we can watch like Disney movies together or we can cook together. And she's somebody who just kind of like understands my struggles in a sense like we can relate to feeling like ignored in society or bullied by people who just don't understand what autism is so we can kind of relate to like the good and the bad of being on the autism spectrum so i i think that having an autistic sibling is really nice even though it can be like hard sometimes because growing up we would still play together a lot when both of us were in like good boots we would play like lps or webkins together or whatever and now we just like hang out on our laptops and i think 
having a neurotypical sibling, because I have kind of both experiences, I would say neurotypical siblings are kind of a lot harder for me to get along with because I don't always like understand what they're doing or what they're saying. And sometimes I feel like they don't really understand my life. Like if I get upset over something, sometimes they don't really like understand why or like how personal it is to me. So I'd say like sometimes things like that can be more difficult. Mm. Yeah, I'm an only child. So I wish I had a sibling. I was always kind of jealous of my cousins and friends who had at least one sibling. Kind of lonely growing up. But anyway, so for now, we've been focusing on the nuclear family, you know, parents and siblings. So let's think about an autistic individual who's transitioning into adulthood. Maybe they're moving away, they're moving out of the house, maybe they're going to college or looking for their first job. How does this affect family dynamics? So for me, I think I always knew at about like 17 that I wanted to go to college. I just wasn't really sure what it would look like. So I finished high school first at 19 because I was held back a year in first grade. And at first, my parents were kind of doubtful about it. They're like, you don't need to go to college if you don't want to. Like, why would you want to go? Is there anything you actually want to do there? And I was like, yeah. And I kind of took like a month or two off to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought graphic design is something that sounds really fun. And it's a more like, I guess, introverted job. Um, and it can be more remote. So uh, traveling wouldn't really be an issue. And I was like, this sounds fun. And I actually really enjoy doing this. So I applied to college and excitingly, I got in. <laughs> and my parents were a little on the fence about it. They were like, is this really going to work out for you? Like, are you going to regret it? So there was a little bit of a barrier there, but they quickly came around like very quickly and became like very supportive of me and my journey in college. And now they're figuring out like how to help me get ready for jobs and get prepared for the road after college. And I look forward to seeing what that looks like. Okay. And then I think, you know, transitioning to college was a little bit more simple for me. I think um, being the youngest, you know, my mom sort of was able to ease up more as, you know, each I, as each child um, sort of moved along. So I did live on the residential campus. It was about an hour north, you know, China University in, in Angola, Indiana. So not too far. And my social dynamics were pretty strong since, you know, I went into like cross country. I kept up distance track. So that crew was always there. The harder transition was what came after college, you know. This would be a long story with a lot of lessons, but a mistake I had was I got really excited about the prospect of sales because, you know, it was glamorized by a personal selling course that I had. And then, you know, and I think, you know, like they do give a lot of like career services, you know, does give a lot of 
well-intentioned advice about filling out resumes and how to come in to an interview. But what I've come to realize now, a good interview is conversational. So, you know, a lot of times I try to come in armed with a bunch of facts about it, you know, what I'm good at. But if I don't have those stories, like, you know, I've done one teaching interview so far now, and I have another one coming up. And like, I'm able to talk about just some of these interactions that I've had with kids, you know, how I approach solving problems, why I really focus on gaining trust over being the CERN disciplinarian. And those interviews feel natural. I don't feel tense or nervous at all about those. But I think um, a predatory job that I went to and at least an apartment in Indianapolis for after college um, sort of exploited the fact that, you know, maybe I wasn't great at interviews and all of a sudden they were able to put me through a process that made me feel good about myself and got me started in a pretty rough situation. All right. Got it. So my brother was placed into a group home when he was 16. So I was. Well, and so college was as far away as I could get. <laughs> and I I see a lot of siblings doing the same thing. So it was about a 14-hour drive or a plane ride away in North Carolina. And so, he, I mean, as far as I knew, he was safe. Somebody was looking after him. I didn't have to worry about it. I knew it would be an issue when I got older. So I just went as far as away as I could. I lived in North Carolina for a while. I did come back to New York uh, to help take care of a grandparent and then took off again and did traveling therapy and just kind of wandered the planet as well. And it was more of, I called, <laughs> I called travel therapy professional bolting. I was taking on contracts <laughs> and working and, you know, I was still being professional because at first I was when my grandmother passed, I was like, I'm going to buy an RV and live off the grid. Everybody's like, you're not going to use your degree. That's dumb. And I was like, well, okay, what could I do? So my husband and I traveled around for a long time before uh, coming down to Florida. And so I, for me, it was how far could I go? <laughs> how far away could I push it? And so, you know, in my 20s, did the whole cliche of doing backpacking across Europe with your rail pass. Before smartphones, I had that. <laughs> so literally just wandering several other countries. But transitioning for me into adulthood, is, I knew there was going to be adult responsibilities at some point, and I tried to push them off as long as I could. Mm, yeah. And thinking about the different support that people might need, whether it's maybe learning how to drive or learning how to live more independently or balance finances. These are all things that people might need to prepare for when they're adolescents so that that transition goes smoothly. So for Mary and Corbin, how did your families prepare you? I would say for me, We've always kind of had chats about like what our life would look like of where we'd live one day or what kind of housing situation would be best for us. We would look at jobs like in the area we were interested in moving to. 
I don't know when idealistically we'd move, but we have, my dad has talked to us about moving to either like Florida or Arizona um, because we want to be closer to my brother and we would live in like a condo or something like that. Okay. All right. So one thing that was interesting that I almost prepared myself is, you know, as a young kid, I was always just interested in roads and streets and transportation itself was an interest. And I just absorbed that information. And I was just somebody who already knew where I was going. And I just, um, and, you know, I just wanted to be in the car for the ride's sake. So for my parents, you know, they usually knew to take me along for stuff like, you know, recycling runs or, or anything like that. So driving was no concern. You know, I got my permit as early as I could. And basically, if there was family driving, I was, you know, I was always driving. So the driving aspect was no concern. And I am great with road directions. So I had that upper hand. And as far as uh, preparing me, um, a lot of it comes down to allowing me to focus on what what that was. So the IP case conference meetings in high school were just kind of were kind of odd ones because you know for one thing, my mom taught the school that I attended, so I was there. You know, my mom was there as so always a, a teacher there, and just to get proof, I recently went to my high school to get that and a lot of it was just focused on self-advocacy so basically um there's some uh, people pleasing struggles that you know i've had similar to that of my mom and i think i have gotten up to working towards that and i think they allowed me to take a big part in like the planning stuff so for example I think for a birthday present in 2013, that was the first time I went to a Colts game. And, you know, I drove my car down there. I had that event all planned out. I knew where to park in downtown Indy. You know, I went there. And just the fact that I am in charge of that kind of planning helps me at least uh, be in charge of the logistical aspects of my life. Right. Yeah. It's important to have some kind of sense of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's transition now into this next phase of maybe starting your own family, maybe looking for a life partner, maybe having kids. How do you guys feel about that? I'm not really sure if I'll get married or not in the future, but if I ever like adopt or have kids, as weird as it sounds, I would want a big family because I actually do really like kids. I just think they're really cute. They're really funny. I just love their little personalities. But I think it's important with autistics to really know someone deep down before they commit to, you know, marriage and having kids and stuff, because that is a very serious life step. And you need to make sure you're with the right person before you jump into that deep end. Mm -hmm. And if you're autistic yourself, I think it's very important for you to discuss with your partner. Obviously, if they're autistic, it's a no-brainer that your kids are 
a high chance of being autistic. But if your partner is neurotypical, you need to have a discussion with them and say, like, you know, I'm autistic or I have disabilities. There's a higher chance that our kids could be the same way as well. Are you okay with that? You know, because some people right off the bat will be like, no, I don't want a disabled child. And then some of them will be like, sure, you know, that doesn't bother me. So I think it's important for autistic people to say and clarify that because it's a very important thing to notify a partner about. All right. Corbin, how do you feel? It's definitely a place that I want to uh I definitely want to get to sometime. You know, I don't know I don't know what the timetable is, but if I want to go comparisons, yes, I am the youngest, but literally every other sibling of mine is married right now. And you know, they just seem to meet somehow, some way. And personally, I'm just trying to get out, get involved in stuff that I care about in the community, but I just can't seem to recognize the signal of, hey, wait, is this worth pursuing any more than it is? And, you know, I'm trying, but I just, um, you know, I just don't have much of a, I just don't seem to have much of a clue there. As far as kids go, the anecdote that I will tell here is, you know, I had a cycle of like very customer service-based jobs and there's a lot of adults that were just sort of complaining to you about this and that. And then, you know, through 2020, uh, bridging some jobs, I did a lot of DoorDash deliveries at that time. And um, one of the things is I delivered an order to this one house uh girl must have been about eight years old. I was driving my uh, 2001 niece. On Centra at the time, so uh, old car, uh, surface rush, uh, some surface rust. All she has to say after all the uh, complaining that you tend to get from adults is, I like your car. My mom has the same one. And those are the kind of interactions you get with kids. And ever since I have substitute uh, taught in mostly elementary schools, at so many of the elementary schools that I've been to, I find myself like being absolutely loved by them it's like there's a bunch of like waist high hugs that I'm getting all the time everybody seems to want me in in their classroom too it's like I don't know I have something that uh, gives me good rapport and if I'm going to move to the next step I think I have to have the job where I'm happy day to day so I think that's the next big step for me okay I think a lot of autistic people really like kids because we can kind of identify with them in a sense. Most of us like youthful things. We don't really have a filter. We don't always show emotions in the appropriate way. So we can kind of relate to kids in a sense, some of us. And I feel like kids kind of like us for those reasons as well. And I feel like a lot of autistics are really down to earth. And kids just kind of like gravitate towards that energy. And there were these kids at my church a couple years ago, and they would always like run up to me and they'd yell my name and they'd hug me. Um, and I was like, oh, hi, how are you? It's so good to see you. Um, so I think there's a lot of controversy with autistic people becoming parents. A lot of people are like, oh, is that something you're capable of handling? And, you know, for some people, definitely not, but some autistic people 
definitely are capable. And I think it's a stereotype that autistic parents break and show like, hey, I am capable of raising a kid just because I have a disability doesn't mean I'm any less capable than you are. Mm, Good point, Mary. Cheryl, what do you think about when you consider your brother and his needs? I mean, is it fair to say that he's never been in a relationship? Not that I'm aware of. Just because somebody's non-speaking doesn't mean they're not capable. He, as far as I know, no. He definitely gravitates toward different people and is very clear if you don't really mesh with him. Like there's certain staff that he could care less that are in the house. Uh, him and his roommate are quite an inter- interesting pair. There's a woman that lives in his house that also uses an iPad to communicate. And he's figured out that if he hands her her iPad, she will ask for things that he also likes. So then he doesn't have to put forth the effort of using his iPad to request a snack or whatever. She will do it instead. And then he's like, he just happens to be sitting there. Like, oh yeah, you do. So he does form relationships in his own way. Romantic, not as far as I know, no. I mean, I never thought I would get married. It wasn't on my radar. <laughs> it wasn't something I was planning on. Um, I was perfectly content with that thought process. And I've now been married for 12 years. So that got thrown out the window. I did make the decision that I was not having children, though. That was just not happening. And now, no, I don't have the energy to see the toddler. Like, that ship has sailed. So not happening. We do have nieces and nephews and cousins that have kids and that I'm fine with that. I have three dogs. So I'm good. I'm mm-hmm. perfectly fine with me. And my spouse had a cousin with severe disabilities, a wheelchair user, had a trait, had a lot of medical stuff growing up. So he understood the dynamic. And so I just kind of, I think, lucked out in that pursuit. But mm-hmm. I can understand <laughs> Not, mm-hmm. not so sure. Like the other, you know, the other two have said, not so sure about actively finding a partner. I was, yeah, I'll give you this. I wasn't looking, so you never know. <laughs> you really don't. Yeah. Sometimes it's when you're not looking that they come. Okay. Well, let's close out this conversation now by looking at older adults. You know, after parents are gone. Is there a plan in place? What are the concerns from both sides, from the aging parent and also from the adult child? Well, first on this one, because I've lived it. So my father didn't have a plan. He had his basic legal documents done, but didn't tell anybody where they were. So will, power of attorney, healthcare, surrogate, those kind of things were done. Just nobody knew where they were. My brother does have legal guardianship and that plan was not put into place. And so when my father got sick, that was not planned. Uh, My uncle was the backup guardian who then had dementia and so couldn't stand in a court of law and say that he can make a sound decision for anybody. And so anybody that ends up listening to this, it's 
have a conversation. Some parents don't want to. It's not really a choice. I look at it this way. like I had the means. I run my own business. I was able to take off and do what I needed to do to support the both of them for about a year and a half and kind of came and went and had clients that understood. Most people aren't in my shoes and don't have the means or the parents don't have the means to have that level of time off to take care of those things. And, or have the FMLA if you had like, so, you know, Corbin, if you're working in a school district, they're not going to let you leave for six months to go take care of affairs. They're just not. And so, you know, what are you going to do? And so the plan really isn't, you know, it's not a morbidity issue. It's have a plan so that somebody can execute it. And I mean, I knew that there was a lack of plans. I made my own. I knew what triggers that we're going to need to be. And I had people kind of on standby and attorneys and things just kind of waiting. Plans can change and that's fine. Uh, it's just, you got to keep updating them and making sure that the, the players involved also know what that plan is going to be without going into too much detail. So I had to take care of both of them at the same time. And it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> and I don't wish that upon anyone. So hopefully your parents will listen to this, guys. <laughs> okay. Start, have it, start the conversation. So if I do anything else, yeah. I hope I start some conversation. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I've seen and... Like, I think my parents personally have no worries about me. I know how to handle a lot of things. So it really comes down to like what happens, you know, as my parents age, I think um, my mom's in her 50s, my dad's in his 60s. So one of the things to note is I've seen from my mom's side, you know, when her, when my grandpa and then later grandma passed on and she like candled, like, I'm just saying on my mom's side of the family in particular, there are, you know, are a lot of dynamics or a lot of, um, there are a lot of complicated dynamics or a lot of feelings, you know, I don't want to go deep into my mom's history, but I think I had, you know, an easier upbringing overall personally uh, than her, but, you know, I've seen her handle power of attorney. I've seen her be like the emotional, uh, the emotional guard for like the hospice process on those two occasions. I've seen her like move on with the assets, selling off houses, like selling off houses that were not necessarily the most marketable houses, you know, like um, one of them was a manufactured double wide, you know, one of them was like a small bungalow near an industrial area. So and of course, my grandma smoked a lot too. So there was a lot of details and painting to take care of that. So as far as that goes, I know, you know, my brother and sister, you know, we can connect and we can coordinate as needed. I know my sister tends to be on top of things and I'll uh, communicate pretty well there. Thanks, Corbin. Mary, go ahead. So I think my parents' biggest fear is how we'll be well, like mentally, physically, they worry about us like eating well, getting enough exercise, getting enough sleep. I think they really worry about everything. Us having enough money for groceries and getting around. They worry about how well we do in our jobs. 
they really just want to make sure we're living like a good independent life. And we do have money set aside from our grandfather. We're in a situation where we can use that, which we're very thankful for. And I think the other thing that we have talked about is, again, just like living very close to my brother, wherever he permanently ends up. So he can kind of be our primary contact in an emergency situation. If anything were to happen to my parents, we've talked about that as well. Yeah, well, it's good that you've got the conversation going. You know, sometimes people want to avoid talking about it because it's uncomfortable and they maybe don't want to think about death, but it it is important to at least have some kind of plan in place so those left behind are not left to their own devices at the last minute. All right, guys. So what are some final takeaways you'd like to share? Okay. I think um, for one thing, um, in future generations growing up, it is important that you know your kid has as much interactions um, with the community as reasonably possible. And that means as long as they're included in a good way, like um, other siblings, um, there's a good way that everybody can feel included and making sure when possible that services are targeted and not comprehensive, then it won't seem like um, a, uh, you know, a more neurotypical sibling um, won't, um, won't be in a situation where they feel neglected and become resentful in the future. So that is a big one. I think generationally, uh, we're heading to a better spot on that, it seems like. Yeah, I agree with Corbin. I think if your sibling has more needs than you do, um, definitely more behavioral challenges, I can relate in that sense. I think there needs to be more structure in place. And I think you need to make sure that you divide your time between your kids evenly. And even when one kid may need more attention, you still need to make sure you're not ignoring your other kids because it's not fair to them. I guess I'll end with there are sibling supports out there. You know, I there's things called a sib shop, which is for children that have a brother or sister with a disability. And I highly recommend those. Uh, I run those in my current business as well, as well as the local card, which is the Center for Autism and Related uh, Disorders. And it's important. I personally didn't know anybody growing up that had a sibling with a disability. And I kind of, you know, I wish I did just to have somebody to talk to. I mean, technically my father was a sib, but that generation, you know, we don't talk about things. So it wasn't something that him or my uncle would talk about. So yeah, I mean, there's Sib Teens, Sib Net, Sib 20s. That's all on Facebook and moderated by social workers to make sure that it's space stays safe. Just there are supports out there. And I think, you know, I keep meeting new ones every day. Like I traveled with one skill core. So, you know, just to make sure that we have our tribe and, you know, it's always nice when you can meet somebody that's had some kind of shared experience and, you know, just like special interest, right? Like it's just nice because you don't really have to talk about it because they already know. And it's just nice to have that 
that first, like those people in your lives. And so if you can start that young and having kids find their tribe, then they know who they can turn to. Yeah, definitely. That's important to have that support. All right. Well, thank you guys for being here today. And I'll see you all in the community. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What are your relationships like with your family members? How has family played a role in different stages in your life? Share your experiences over in our online Global Autism community. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Or are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.